people are taking witches and the occult, uh, astrology, uh, they're taking all this jazz more and more serious. And uh, I, I read a, a quotation from Edward Gibbon not long ago, and Gibbon is the guy who wrote The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, or The Decline of the Roman Empire. And he made the point that as Rome began to decline, superstition rose to unparalleled heights. Did you know that, Al? But superstition in Rome, just about the time when Rome was beginning to uh, finally go under and become just a tourist trap, that uh, people began to believe in all kinds of wild superstitions. And he said the belief in, in ghosts and one thing or another began to be noticeable on all sides. And you can see that happening. Have you noticed that, the, that now they're doing big TV uh, spectaculars on a seance? You notice that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I, I, if this continues, I see the day when uh, every president will have his personal medium to contact the other world. Uh, oh, sure, you know, because after all, why, why should such great military geniuses say Hannibal uh, be allowed to be wasted? And so the president will call on his medium and say, we would like to, uh, we'd like to uh, figure out a vast pincers movement on the enemy. Would you please uh, put me in touch, put me through to Hannibal? And then the, uh, the medium will go into a trance. You know, they're always going to try to go, oh, 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 they fall down, you know, oh, they bring out the purple lights, oh, and the bugles start blowing, flap, 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 oh, and then suddenly out of the air conditioning comes a ghostly voice, I am Hannibal. Why are you disturbing my peace? Uh, Mr. Hannibal, uh, I'm the President of the United States, and uh, we would like to uh, work out a pincers movement on the enemy, and we understand that you're a pretty good man with the military tactics, right? Yes, in my time, I was considered the outstanding military genius in hack executive conk in hospital law. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, uh, please keep it the, in English there. I don't speak none of them foreign languages, but uh, very good. Uh, Hannibal, uh, what do you say about overextending your supply lines? We've got a little problem here about supply lines. I say that he that had extended his supply lines beyond logical, reasonable lengths asks for a military disaster. Better shorten your supply lines, buddy. You're running them out too long. And incidentally, another thing, I'd suggest that you get more half-tracks at work. Uh, I've been watching your... Oh, it's got to come. It's got to come. And, uh, oh, uh, yes, of course. And, uh, and, every, and every major building, uh, like, say, every major uh, corporation, you know, for a few years back, Psychiatry's out now. That's one of the great out scientists. Uh, psychiatry's out, and psychologists are as dead as uh, you know what's what's. <laughs> and they're, they're, they really are. They're they're dead. They're, they've gone the way of the alchemist. On all sides now, people are laughing. And so, uh, a few years ago, if you remember, every major company had its resident psychiatrist. And so, if the uh, the head of the promotion department flipped his wig. 
they just run him down to the 28th floor and they, uh, you know, plunk him on a couch there for a while. And they'd find out what's bugging him. They'd find out where his repressions were becoming uh, a little too uh, strenuous and his aggressions were getting out. And they'd throw him back in the fight. He's okay. But now that's dead. And I say that every major company will have its resident astrologer. And, uh, and so before, uh, <laughs> before a big sales promotion, I can just see it here at WR, you know, before a big sales promotion, uh, Mr. Smith gets on the phone, he calls in the astrologer, and Bob Yusey is called in, they call in Herb Saltzman, you know, and Bob Alden, the whole crowd, and uh, they walk into this room. And this room, of course, there'll be an astrologer's room, you know, just like in the, in the old days when they had the psychiatrists, they used to have a psychiatrist's room, and it had, a, it had a certain look about it. They always had old American furniture and heavy leather couches, and they had uh, pictures of uh, uh, skating scenes by Courier and Ives. You see, it was all designed to, uh, to uh, soothe the troubled breast. And you'd come in, and they had, the, yeah, it was very important when you're doing you know, psychiatry work, you know, you know, whole stick. And usually somewhere along the line, there was a, there was a uh, frame hanging on the wall with a, with a diploma, with a great big gold seal on it. That's, that's very totemistic. That, that, that really used to get the poor, you know, the, the poor wackos going. They'd see that, and they know they were in the presence of officialdom. But uh, that's going to, of course, have to be carried out in the, in, the, in the astrologer world. And so they will pile into a darkened room, and there will be purple drapes hanging all around, everywhere. And the astrologer does not just sit at a desk. The astrologer makes an entrance and wears one of those high-peaked hats, you know, the kind that Merlin wears with moons all over it and stars and bells and little jazz like that, and long purple robe, the whole business. And they'll all come in, and Mr. Smith will sit at the desk there, at the big teakwood desk. It's carved with symbols, of course. It has because magic is very important. Nobody really knows how anything works, you know. It's all considered magic, David underneath it all. We use the word all the time, like the magic of Johnny Carson, uh, the magic of Ed Sullivan. So, you know, <laughs> there's no real answer to these things. So, so the desk is carved with little moons and jazz like that. And uh, Mr. Smith says, uh, uh, Mr. Swami, uh, we would like to uh, ask you, uh, how does uh, the month of December look for our uh, Operation Uprating? And we've got an operation there to raise all the ratings. What we're going to do is we're going to teach all the various performers on the station to sing uh, the company song. And we're going to open it up with the company song. We have a little rock and roll thrown in. We're going to, Al McCann is going to get a little group. It's going to be called Al McCann and his striped bass. And they're going to play down at the Jilly's place. And, you know, they can work. And uh, we're, we're, you know, we're trying to boost the rating. What does it look like to you? And then the Swami says, Ah. Ah. He's looking at his charts, you see. Phonology. Ah. Ah, the seventh phase of Mercury is in direct conflict from December 2nd on to the 13th of January is in direct conflict with the fourth phase of Arcturus, the third Pleiades statute as it moves into the great cosmos area and into the shadow of Orion the Grape. Do you realize what this means? Forget it. 
That is WNEW weather. So I suggest that we fire the sales department and lay low till February. I have, I have spoken. Let me tell you, don't think that wouldn't make sense to a lot of people around here. Everything else has failed. We tried it all, you know. And so tonight, we are about to celebrate. Speak your failures. We're going to have to big. <laughs> that reminds me, this is W-O-R, W-O-R, New York. And, oh, oh, yeah, one more thing here. I've got the, oh, yes, yes. Before we go anything else, Friday, Friday November 3rd. At 8 o'clock, and don't say I didn't warn you, uh, Friday, November 3rd, there's going to be a gigantic event entitled An Evening with Gene Shepard. Gee, I'd like to spend one of them evenings. It's an, <laughs> it's an evening with Gene Shepard at Randolph High School at 8 p.m., Millbrook, Mount Freedom Road. Now, why, why don't you get right down to the basic here? Randolph High School in Dover, New Jersey. If you live out around Dover, New Jersey, heaven help you. But if you live out around Dover, New Jersey, we're going to be at Randolph High School on the Millbrook Mount Freedom Road, February, November 3rd at 8 o'clock. And the tickets are available at the door. And the benefit is for the Randolph High School Scholarship Fund. Whatever that may be. And uh, the Randolph High School. I wonder what Randolph they're named after. Oh, that's very good. Randolph Scott, maybe? Oh, sure, no kidding. You know, the, 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 are, are you aware that, that out in Minnesota, I believe it is, there is a Joe Palooka High School? Sorry. Absolutely sorry that, uh, that uh, more and more we're beginning to name things after mythological creatures that uh, they're very important. Uh, I believe there is a town... Yeah, this is, I don't want to, want to deviate from the subject here, but you know that there's a town in Arizona that was named after an old radio television show? I believe it's Arizona. And periodically, the townspeople get mad and march on the city hall to try to change the name of it. And believe it or not, it's called Truth or Consequences. Truth or Consequences, uh, Arizona. Did you, did you ever hear about that? Well, I mean, uh, there's a nuttiness as extent, so what's the matter with Joe Palooka High School? That's like hit the ding-dong Indiana, you know? Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, or Allen Ludden, Iowa. Oh, boy. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's all kinds of... Speaking of, uh, speaking of the supernatural friends, listen, you buy my paperback book or I'll hit you. But uh, I'm delighted to report that, uh, that in God we trust... Did you see that, Alan? In God we trust, all others pay cash has been on the bestseller list now for the past month in New York City. And uh, that's in paperbacks. And we're pleased, you know, and delighted that uh, we not only passed in the uh, Valley of the Dolls, if you can imagine that, we actually topped the Passover plot. And to do that in New York, you're doing some topping. And uh, that's in God We Trust. All of us pay cash, and it's on, uh, it's on Bantam. And if you walk into your drugstore and the guy says, I only carry dirty books, well, you tell him, uh, look at chapter 12, the second page, the third paragraph on the bottom, okay? 
That's in God we trust. All of us pay cash. Now, would you please sneak that in? I need this little bit here. Sneak it in. It's Halloween night. And boy, do I have some memories about this night. You know that there's a, a whole body of poetry been written about Halloween? I will read to you. On Halloween, I'll go to town and wear my trousers upside down and wear my shoes turned inside out and wear a wig of sauerkraut. That's Shelley Silverstein. <laughs> oh, but this is even a better one. Listen to this one. The hag is astride this night. The hag is astride this night for to ride the devil. And she together through thick and thin, now out and then in, through ne'er so foul be the weather. A thorn or a burr she takes for his spur with a lash of a bramble. She rides now through brakes, through briars, over ditches and mires. She follows the spirit that guides now. No beast for his food dares now range the wood, but hushed in his lair he lies lurking, while mischiefs by these on land and on seas at noon of night are a-working. The storm will arise and will trouble the skies this night and more for the wonder because the ghost from the tomb affrighted shall come called out by the clap of the thunder. Who, who raps at my window? Who in a white sheet runs across the midnight lawn without the sound of feet? Huh? What moon grows in the east so huge and dusky red? Who howls from the chill within the hill where the farmer's hound lies dead? The dry leaves twist and rattle, alive in an evil spell. And down by the pond, the man who drowned tolls a wavering bell. The wind has hardly wakened, yet flapping through the air fly shapes with wings and bony things and forms with jagged hair. Who blows at my candle? Whose fiery grin and eyes behind me pass in the looking glass and make my goose flesh rise? Who moved in that shadow? Who rustles past unseen with the dark so deep I dare not sleep all night on Halloween? That's not bad, is it? Listen to this one. This is called a Halloween indignation meeting. A sulky witch and a surly cat and a scowly owl and a skeleton sat with a grouchy ghost and a waspish bat and angrily snarled and chewed the fat. It seems that they were all upset and riled that they could not frighten the modern child who was much too knowing and much too wild and considered Halloween spooks too mild, said the witch, and we quote, they call this the human race. <laughs> Yet the kitties occupy outer space. They bob for comets and eat ice cream from flying saucers to get up steam. I'm a shade of my former self, said the skeleton. I shiver and shake like so much gelatin. Indeed, I'm a pitiful sight to see. I'm scareder of kids than they are of me. Yes, and here's 
one of the great classics of all time. From ghoulies and ghosties, long-leggedy beasties and things that go bump in the night. Good Lord, deliver us. That's a great classic. That one, that one, that one, that one more than any, I think, has uh, has hung around. And and you know, now, and I want I want to be serious here for a minute. You know, you, you listen and you kind of laugh at all this stuff of of uh, of ghosts and ghoulies and things that go bump in the night. Yet, man, ever since the very probably one of the things that set man aside from all the other creatures is his fear of the unseen things. Now, whatever they might be, I mean, you know, he's invented them. But that doesn't matter. That makes them even more evil, the fact that he has created them. And, you know, you can almost see the first scene. You don't ever see camels standing there talking to each other. And one camel says, I don't know. There's something behind that bush. Never. You won't see, even though, you know, people have a tendency to believe that dogs do this. No. But any time a dog's hair rises on the back of his neck, it's because he smells something. He's heard a sound that maybe you can't hear, because his ears, you know, go way up higher in frequency than the human ears. And so he's heard something scratch, or he's heard, he's heard the wind blow through something, and it's made a high-pitched squeal, which you can't even detect. And his fur goes up. He looks around. He goes, and people have a tendency to say, now, you see, he's aware of unseen things. Not necessarily. Uh, he hears things. He smells things at you. But they're physical, really. It's only man, like Edgar Allan Poe, only man could conceive of a, of a raven sitting there up on the, on the sill, dark and forbidding, and saying only, nevermore. Nevermore, quote the raven, nevermore. And the tintinabulation of the bells, the bells. And this, this is a, this is what sets us apart, among other things. It's what created the devil. And uh, almost every, and I won't, won't be too general here about this, but almost every society that we have ever studied, that man has ever looked at, has its version of the dark side of the moon, that evil thing, whatever it might be. And you feel it yourself. I don't think there's a man with soul so dead who never to himself has said when he goes into the dark garage, holy smokes. <laughs> I mean, what is he afraid of? He doesn't know, you know. He has no idea what he's afraid of. Now, if you say, are you afraid of a short guy with pimples hiding there back where you keep the old used tires and he's got a wrench in his hand, he's going to hit you on the head? No, not that specific. It's the dark. And I can imagine one of the great turning points came in man's history when these two cavemen in primordial times, long before history was ever even conceived as an abstract science, back in the days when they didn't even have a sky, like we know now. It was all gray from horizon to horizon. They had not even yet invented trees. There was nothing but the eternal gray and the eternal black. 
And on, and Charlie, but a few millennia, had crawled from the dark, stygian waters of the ancient lake from whence we all sprung. And now they sit, crouched, hunched, their beady, red-rimmed eyes peering out at the blackening world from the mouth of their cave. And the wind howls through the rocks. He speaks. 
turned slowly. Because reaction times were not very fast then. He turned slowly. And says, what you Translated means, what did you say? I repeat, Meaning, there is something over there. There is something in the dark, in that shadow. What is it? It was the first time that that elusive feeling was felt. It was the very first time, but far from the last. <laughs> How do you like that? Eh? Does that make any sense to you? Yes, it does. Hello, test. Yes, it does. In fact, I'm about now to read a poem to you that more than any other poem I've read in a long time captures that sneaky, sneaky feeling of there's something out there in the dark. Now, if you will please... Uh, if you will please sneak that up there... You put it on there? All right. Now, wait till, wait till you hear this one now. Just hold on. You ready now? You better send the kids to bed. This is a beautiful poem. One of my favorites. And I read it to you now. Slowly. Silently. Now the moon walks the night in her silver shoon. This way and that, she peers and sees silver fruit upon silver trees. One by one, the casements catch her beams beneath the silvery thatch. Crouched in his kennel like a log with paws of silver, sleeps the dog. From their shadowy coat, the white breasts peep of doves in a silver-feathered sleep. A harvest mouse goes scampering by with silver claws and silver eye, and moveless fish in the water gleam by silver reeds in a silver stream. Isn't that a beautiful poem? That darkness. Yeah, and here's one by the same poet, Walter de Lamar. When Sam goes back in memory, it is to where the sea breaks on the shingle, emerald green, in white foam, endlessly. He says with small brown eyes on mine, I used to keep awake and lean from my windows in the moon watching those billows break. And half a million tiny hands and eyes like sparks of frost would dance and come tumbling into the moon on every breaker tossed. And all across from star to star, I've seen the watery sea with not a single ship in sight. Just ocean. Just ocean there. And me. And heard my father snore. And once, as sure as I'm alive, out of those wallowing moon-flecked waves, I saw a mermaid dive, head and shoulders above the wave, plain as I see you now, combing her hair. Now back, now front, her two eyes peeping through, calling me. Sam, quiet-like. Sam. But me, I never went. Making believe I kind of thought was someone else she meant. Wonderful, lovely. There she sat, singing the night away. All in the solitudinous sea. 
of that there lonely bay. Perhaps, and he'd smooth his hairless mouth. Perhaps if it were now, my son. Perhaps if I heard a voice say, Sam, morning would find me gone. poem about that strange fear that we all know. I know some lonely houses off the road, a robber like the look of, wooden barred and windows hanging low, inviting to a portico where two could creep, one hand the tools, the other peep to make sure all's asleep. Old-fashioned eyes, <laughs> not easy to surprise. How orderly the kitchen had looked by night with just a clock. But they could gag the tick, and mice won't bark. And so the walls don't tell. None will. A pair of spectacles ajar, just stir, an almanac's aware. Was it the map that winked? Or a nervous star? The moon slides down the stair to see who's there. There's plunder. Where? Tankard or spoon, earring or stone, a watch, some ancient brooch, to match the grandmama, stayed, sleeping there. Day rattles, too. Stealth, slow, the sun has got as far as the third sycamore. Screams Chanticleer, who's there? And echoes, trains away, sneer, where? While the old couple, just to stir, fancy the sunrise left the door ajar. Who wrote that? Emily Dickinson. That's a sneaky one, yeah. Listen to this one. I am out on the wind in the wild black night. On the wings of the owl I take my flight. On the ghostly wings of the great white owl. And whether the night be fair or foul, or the moon be up, or the thunder growl, happy I be. <laughs> happy I be. When the changeling blood runs green in me. When meek folk sleep in their dull, soft beds, I creep over roots that the weasel treads where the squat green lamps of the toadstools glow. And only the fox knows the ways I go. And nobody knows the things I know. Wise I be. Wise I be when the changeling blood runs green in me. Oh, mother, slumber, do not awake. Thin voices call from the rain-wet break. And the child you cradled against your breast is out in the night on the black wind's crest. For only the wild can give me rest. Sad I be. Sad I be when the changeling blood runs green in me. Yeah. Do you want to hear some more of these? These are magnificent, some of these. Because I think some of the greatest poems, you know, people keep thinking that poetry is always about love. You know, most people say the great poetry is about love. I think some of the greatest poetry in the world has been written about fear. Uh, <laughs> listen to this one now. Here's, here's, here's another interesting piece of business by a famous German poet under the linden. The music is gay, the couples are gossiping loudly, and two are dancing, whom nobody knows, 
They carry themselves so proudly. Now here, now there, they glide and sway and wave like measures, beguiling. They bow to each other, and as they nod, she whispers, gently smiling. <laughs> A water pink is hanging from your cap, my fair young dancer. It only grows in the depths of the sea. You are no mortal man, sir. You are a merman, and to lure these village maids your wishes, I knew you at once by your watery eyes and your teeth as sharp as the fishes. <laughs> oh, yes, now here, now there, they glide and sway in wave-like measures beguiling. They bow to each other, and as they nod, he answers, gently smiling. Oh, my lovely lady, tell me why your hand's so cold and shiny. And why is the border of your gown so damp and draggled and briny? <laughs> I knew you at once by your watery eyes and your bow so mocking and tricksy. Uh, you're never a daughter of earth, my dear. You're my cousin, a Nixie. The fiddles are silent. The dancing is done. They part with a ripple of laughter. They know each other too well and will try to avoid such a meeting hereafter. <laughs> here's another famous one. How much time do I have? Oh, okay. Here's one. Here's a beautiful one. And by the way, this has been set to music. And uh, it, the music that it's set to is an Elizabethan lament and uh, I've heard it once or twice. It's quite rare, but listen to this one. Drank lonesome water. Weren't but a tad then, up in a laurel thick, digging for sang. Come on a place where the stones was holler. Something below them tinkled and rang. Dug where I heard it, dripping below me. Should have known better, should have been wise. Leaned down and drank it, clutching and gripping the overhang, clib with the ferns in my eyes. Weren't no tame water, I knowed in a minute. Must have been laying there, projecting around some winter, went home. Must have laid like a cushion where the feet of the blossoms was tucked in the ground. It tasted of heart leaf. And that smells the sweetest. Pawpaw and spice bush and wild briar rose. Must have been counting the heels of the spruce pines and neighboring around where Angelica grows. I drunk lonesome water. I knowed in a minute, never learnt nothing from then till today. Nothing worth learning, nothing worth knowing. I'm bound to the hills and can't get away. Mean, sort of dried-up old groundhoggy fella laying out cold here, watching the sky pour as a whippoorwill, bent like a grass blade, counting up stars till they count too high. I know where the gray foxes uses of yander. Know what'll cure you of physic or chills. But I never been away from here. Never got going. I've drunk lonesome water. I'm bound to the hills. Isn't that a sad one? That one line, never got going. I've drunk lonesome water. Boy, maybe that answers your questions why you never got moving. Now, these are about real things, you know. <laughs> Listen to this one. This is called The Ghost That Jim Saw. This is another old American classic. 
And it's written, by the way, it was written by a great American poet. Why, as to that, said the engineer, ghosts ain't things we're apt to fear. Spirits don't fool with levers much. And throttle valves don't take to such. And as for Jim, what happened to him was one half fact and the other half whim. Running one night on the line, he saw a house as plain as the moral law, just by the moonlit bank. And thence, out came a drunken man with no more sense than to drop right on the rail, flat as a flail, as Jim drove by with the midnight mail. Down went the patent, steam reversed. Too late! There came a thud. Jim cursed. As the fireman there in the cab with him kind of stared in the face of Jim and says, What now? Says Jim, What now? I've just run over a man. That's how. The firemen stared at Jim. They ran back, but never found house nor man, never a shadow within a mile. Jim turned pale, but he tried to smile. Then on he tore, ten mile or more, in quicker time than he'd ever made before. Would you believe it? The very next night, up rose that house in the moonlight, white. Out comes the chap and drops just as before. Down goes the brake, and the rest, encore. And so, in fact, each night, that act occurred until Forbes swore that Jim was cracked. Let me see, it's a year now, most, that I met Jim, east, out in the east, and he says, how's your ghost? Gone, said Jim, and more, it's plain that ghost don't trouble me again. I thought I shook that ghost when I took a place on an eastern line. But look, what should I meet the first trip out but the very house we talked about and the selfsame man? Well, says I, I guess it's time to stop this year foolishness, so I crammed down the steam and there come a scream from my fireman that just broke my dream. You killed somebody, says I. Not much. I've been there often, and there ain't no such, and I'll prove it. Back we ran. And darn my skin, but there was a man on the rail dead, smashed on the head. Now I call that meanness, is all that Jim could say. That was written by Bret Hart way down deep in the darkness of the soul of the man as he walks along 49th Street with the wind howling out over the devilish river, screaming out of the eternal over the horizon and over the waves. Ah, the call of the Lorelei. <laughs> Who knows what evil lies in the hearts of men. But uh, I say to you, friend, as I've said so many times, trick or treat, and by the way, yeah, I did a terrible thing today in the bank, Al. I walked in right up to my, right up to my teller, and I said, trick or treat. <laughs> he looked at me and says, what do you expect me to give you? I said, guess. Trick or treat. And he says, well, what if I said trick? And with that, I whipped out a 44. I got the candy. Now bring it up there big, friends. And out there in the darkness... Out there. Oh, heck, it's just a cat. I mean, who cares? And you know, that's exactly what Charlie said to Og. It's just a saber-tooth tiger. Og said, no, no. It's something else. I can't quite figure it out. And there you had the two of them right there from the very beginning. The skeptic and the believer. The skeptic and the believer. And who's right? Well, keep your knees loose, and you better be hoping that you're betting on the right side, friends. You better be hoping.